Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. You know what I'm going to say and I know you want to click forward but please before you do just hear me out. The Tortoise Shack has no ads, no sponsors. We rely entirely on you dear listeners to pay it forward, to keep the podcast free. If you get something out of it please give something back. It's really simple. You click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise and you help us keep the mics on and the conversations like the one you're about to hear keep happening. I know you're fed up of me asking, but I'm fed up of having to ask. Believe me, I don't want to have to do it, but we don't live in the socialist utopia that I dream of. And until we do, we need you guys to pay the fiver a month or whatever it is you can to create that little bit of space that helps us branch out the platform to keep those stories that you want to hear about and the voices you don't hear anywhere else. We know it's hard out there. We get it. We cover the cost of living crisis more than most but we also have a cost of living crisis or cost of keeping mics on crisis. And the only way that changes is if a couple of you chip in at patreon.com forward slash tortoise Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and as promised, we are back talking about... The doomsday scenario that is climate change, the climate destruction and breakdown that is, that is outside our windows, even though we might not yet see it on the horizon. Um, unfortunately for us, there are people who are going to make things worse. And I'm joined by my co-host, Martin McMahon. Martin, how are you? Grand, Grant. I'll just say, I'll just say, might be on our horizon. But if you lived elsewhere in the world, you're seeing it every day. And and we are we are absolutely seeing so many um, climate emergencies breaking out where we're talking about uh, genuinely talking about climate refugees and it all flows into one part where we get more and more concerned about the militarization of, of the EU and what that means then for people who are suffering from the effects of how we've lived our lives for the last century and they're going to pay for it and then they're going to pay for it on the other end if we do uh, arm ourselves to the teeth anyway. I am delighted to be rejoined on the podcast for the first time in 2023 by uh, regular enough over the last number of years, John Gibbons. John, how are you keeping? It's good to see you. Very well, Tony, and good to see you and Martin. Yeah, it's always great to be back on the pod. Yeah, no, and 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 actually, Martin was the was the key instigator of this, and the reason being is because if if listeners were with us long enough, they'll remember probably I think it was your the second time you were on number of years ago. We were having this conversation and the two of you got into it around what might happen should enough should enough water, uh, ice melt and cause a a change to the Gulf Stream that, that, that would impact us all. Uh, and, and I kind of sat there going, listen to these guys, it sounds like the plot line of the day after tomorrow. <laughs> you were both going, no, 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 Tony, this can't, this is, uh, yes, yeah, science fiction, but also science fact. John, tell me what's been happening recently that, that makes us think that you two can now point at me and go, Tony, go back and stick your head in the sand. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the, probably the best known international experts in this field, uh, Professor Steph, Stefan Ramsdorf was in Dublin last week to give a, a lecture around the, the, what's called the AMOC, which is the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Current, or uh, some people call it the Gulf Stream. But essentially, the best way to describe this uh, stream, it's part of a global system of uh, submarine currents. These are gigantic currents. And to give you an idea of how big these currents are, they would move at any given time vastly greater than all the water moved by all the rivers in the world. So these are gigantic sub- s- submarine currents. Now, 
the one that kind of links Europe and Northwest, uh, sorry, uh, the Caribbean and Northwest Europe. That That's the sort of Gulf Stream phase of it. Now, that transfers what's called a petawatt of uh, heat energy to our part of the world. Now, a petawatt is the equivalent of the amount of energy produced by one million nuclear power stations. It's a lot of juice. So Western, Northwestern Europe gets an energy subsidy, the equivalent of a million nuclear power stations. So a million gigawatts of heat energy transferred through not just the water, but also through the warmed air. And that's the reason, for example, why at our latitude, which is pretty high up, we're, we're ice free all the year round and why our mean temperature is several degrees above freezing. Now, uh, those kind of science fiction scenarios would have a situation where that current breaks down, uh, ceases, and basically all very bad things happen in the North Atlantic. The first and obvious thing would be uh, that we would have the loss of that energy subsidy from the from the the, the tropics. Uh, it would have a couple of different effects. Uh, okay, that's the science fiction. Let me stick with the science fact for a moment. As uh, Ramsdorf outlined. The, we know for certain that the Gulf Stream has lost about 15% of its power since about 1980, 1990. So this is a historically dramatic uh, loss of power. Now, it's a pump, uh, a bit like your heart. Your heart doesn't have to lose 100% of its pumping capacity before it fails. It loses a certain amount of pumping capacity and then it switches off. So think of the Gulf Stream as a bit like that. It's this fine balance between salty water and fresh water. And this is basically the engine that drives this overturning current. Now, at a certain point, that switches off. The main focus has been in the North Atlantic. Now, more recently, uh, some heavy-duty research has focused instead on the on on the southern uh, part of this current, and this is the current that surrounds Antarctica. This appears to be close to collapse, and this is uh, pretty weird news. Uh, and Again, bear in mind that these currents are obviously connected because the global oceans flow from Antarctica to the Arctic and everywhere in between. And if you think of the the continents, they're almost like islands in a sea of water because we're primarily 70% water. So that's kind of the business end of the global climate is happening in our oceans. And these systems of, of heat transfer, uh, they've been running like this in this way for thousands of years. And that's basically why we have the kind of climate that we have now. As I mentioned, if Northwestern Europe were to suddenly cool uh, by, you know, depending on how uh, on how it went, four, maybe five degrees centigrade, obviously the effects here domestically would be catastrophic. Uh, cooling of that kind would be the equivalent in our part of the world of how cool it was during the last ice age. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we're going to have an ice age. It just shows you how dramatic a five degree uh, average cooling would be. Now, it would be regional and it would be partly offset. The good news here is that somewhere between the frying pan and the fire, <laughs> the frying pan of an AMOC collapse and the fire of global warming, some of the cooling effect would be offset by the on, by the onrushing global warming. But this is really, these are not, either of these situations are not good situations. And a point I always try to make really clear about this as best I can is, you know, our version of civilization, whether you like it or whether you lump it, everything we've done for the last 10,000 years, really in this period known as the Holocene, which is the, the stable, climatically stable period since the end of the last ice age. And this is an incredibly stable period. Global temperatures haven't uh, 
varied by more than plus one or minus one degree centigrade on that Holocene level for 10,000 years. It's incredible. That's on a global average basis. Now, we have now exited the Holocene. We left the Holocene probably about 30, maybe 50 years ago. We're now heading into a post-Holocene. Um, the Anthropocene. The Anthropocene, that's, some, that's one word for it. I mm. prefer uh, what's called a super interglacial, right? Uh, which is basically, I suppose, a shorthand name for a hothouse Earth phase. The only thing we know for sure is that humans have never lived through a super interglacial. Never, ever lived through. Remember, we're only knocking around for about as a species for about 200,000 years, there has never been a super interglacial in all, of, in all of human history. And there sure as hell hasn't been a super interglacial with 8,000 million humans and 80,000 million livestock trying, scrambling to make a living, right? Mm. And I think people often say to me, oh, they are exchanged in the past, blah, blah, blah. My first question is, how do you know that, by the way? We, you know, is anything to do with paleo paleoclimatology? You know those those climate scientists you're always giving out about. They're the ones who figured this out. So maybe we should, if they're if they're that good at telling us about ancient climates, maybe they're pretty good at also telling us where we're headed based on the evidence from paleoclimatology. So the only reason we were even aware of the ice ages and of the fact that conditions for life on Earth change so dramatically over time is because of the work painstaking work done over the last century by scientists. And I think a lot of them, I suppose, it's a great irony that the early work done by many climate scientists, uh, guys like Svante Arrhenius, who was a, a Swedish scientist, um, he was delighted when he figured out that global, a bit of global warming because, uh, as you can imagine, in Sweden in the 1890s, the biggest problem was it was bloody cold, right? And he was thinking over the next few centuries, you know, if humans were to ever manage to double CO2 levels, he reckoned it would take a thousand years. But if he did, he thought that the Earth might get a little more uh, pleasant and benign, which will tell you, first of all... Uh, well, can I be real cheeky and say, yeah. Leo Varadkar actually said that a few years ago. He said, Ireland might be one of the winners out of climate, action, out of climate yeah. change. In, in a way, he has a point, Tony, because, you know, when the world has gone to hell in a handcart uh, and you're not in the handcart, in a way, yes. So relatively speaking, Right. As the rest of the world basically becomes, uh, if you like, breaks down under the pressures that we're describing here, then sure, Ireland in the short term could be a winner. Now, I would choose my my I, I'd be very careful about how I thought about that as winning, because mm. in a interconnected world, how exactly we think we can continue on while other countries fail and while entire states and regions basically uh, tumble into chaos. Uh, that That's a puzzle, especially given that Ireland is one of the most globalized countries on earth. So this idea that we are an, an island in both physical and metaphorical, somehow cut off from the raging storms elsewhere, I mean, that that's a fallacy. In fact, I would even argue, Tony, that the AMOC points this out, the interconnectedness of things. That's really the whole point about it. And that that the, the sort of far away effects of climate change come rushing to our own shores. And and maybe, I don't know, maybe now is a good time, maybe not, is not a good time to talk about where we're headed in terms of this climate future, because it's been it's been a little while since we had the conversation. No, I'm, I, I'm I happy think, to I yeah. think we need to go there, John. I think we need to go straight there. Let's let's just start with the Gulf Stream. Yep. Hudson Bay is on the same latitude as Ireland. It was minus three in Hudson Bay when I checked it earlier this week. That's what you can expect without a Gulf Stream. It'll be offset. You'll still have warmer summers. It'll be offset. But for six months of the year, you have no agriculture. Yeah, you have no crops. 
we we certainly aren't geared to have houses that are warm enough to deal with snowfall the same as they'd have in Hudson Bay. That's the that's the good that's the good uh, scenario where we just get longer, harder winters and summers would be okay. But that's a change we're not capable of coping with. On the point that it, Ireland may be, it may be good for Ireland, there's going to be one, maybe two billion climate migrants. Now, I don't care how many walls Europe wants to put up. I don't care how many walls anybody wants to put up. How are you going to stop two billion people running for their lives? How are you going to stop it? You can't. You can't. Well, well, you shouldn't be. But anyway, go ahead. We're gonna we're gonna try. You know that. I mean, but Western you, you Europe is going to become fortress Europe. Yeah, you can't beat those numbers, John. You may hold the you may hold it back for a while, but you yeah. can't beat those numbers. I agree you with really you, Mark. And it's probably worth again taking a moment to to explain to listeners who may be not quite so familiar how you can come up with a figure like uh, one to two billion climate migrants. Because I would say you're entirely correct. Uh, and the, the calculations that have been done on this, um, the most recent one was a paper that was published a couple of years ago, and it calculated uh, that at the moment, uh, areas of the earth that are considered to be too hot for human habitation currently cover about 0.8% of the earth's surface, and they're mostly in parts of uh, Saharan North Africa. Now, that I think they, their calculation for too hot for human habitation is a mean temperature of 28 degrees centigrade. That means 28 degrees centigrade around the clock. Okay. So that's pretty savage. Now, um, there's the same study extrapolated forward to, I think it was 2070. So they brought it forward about 50 years. And they said by their estimates on a, on a mid, mid-range trajectory of global warming, that, that 0.8% of the land mass too hot for humans and other mammals to exist will have expanded to 19% of the land area of the earth. And that is where currently three thousand million humans live, which is uh, 500 times the population of the island of Ireland, just for people to get their heads around these numbers. Because sometimes when you start talking in billions, I think people kind of go, the numbers are just too big. Mm -hmm. So we're looking here at a, essentially, this is, these are areas of the world where food will not grow, where crops will be sterilized through extreme temperatures, and where humans for at least some of the, of the year, and the point about some of the year is. You can't go on your holidays to Majorca when your country is too hot. You can't put a billion people, you know, uh, off somewhere nice and cool, off to Iceland or Reykjavik uh, when their country is uninhabitable, say, for four months of the year. And this is the issue we're facing and we're seeing this right now. We saw it in 2022. Areas of Pakistan and areas across India were approaching uh, the wet bulb temperature which basically, at which it becomes lethal for humans. That's yeah. right. Now, the, the, again, to define our terminology here, a wet bulb temperature simply means uh, that the temperature at which it is 100% humidity. Now, normally, as it gets warmer, the humidity reduces, okay? But when you've got high temperatures and 100% humidity, that means there is no way for a mammal to lose heat. So a human, stripped naked, sitting in the shade with a bottle of water, will still die when the wet bulb temperature remains above 28 degrees centigrade. There is no way for the human body, other than using air conditioning, to survive those temperatures. And bear in mind, most people in the world do not have access to air conditioning. No. So and we're getting, yeah, sorry. I, I, no, I want to make one small point just for listeners. Yeah. We keep talking about Fortress Europe. Um, if you're if you're like me and you're like you're always keeping an eye on, I, I, I read the Spanish newspapers out of my um, sort of, 
I'm culturally Catalonian, if that makes sense to anybody. And if you know me long enough, that's kind of my. And but the the drought of 2022 that that made it very difficult to produce food in in and and certain crops in in Catalonia is now the drought of 2023. And what's left has been destroyed by by basically ravenous rabbits. And what's left because they're tr- because now they can't control it because that's what's happening. So it's happening. It's playing out in Europe as well, John, in, in other ways that we we haven't seen before. Are these rampant rabbits, Tony? We're not sponsored by Ann Summers, but if they're interested, we will take the money. We, need... we will take the money. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, Joe, I mean, you got to laugh sometimes, but joking yeah. apart, uh, yeah, currently 60% of the agricultural land of Spain is in severe drought, in 60%. Now, to give a quick heads up on just how drought-prone Europe has become, in the 20th century, there were three droughts in, three severe droughts in Europe. The first one was 1949, and the second two, I think, was uh, 1990 and maybe, sorry, 76 and 1990. So three droughts, in 100 years, okay? Now, in the first, from 2003 to 2022, in those 20 years, we've had six droughts. That means the drought frequency in the first two decades of the 21st century has increased tenfold over the 20th century. Now, what I mean by drought, these are categorized as severe drought conditions. The problem, of course, is when a drought becomes a perma-drought. When basically what we had last summer, as you correctly said, was the hottest summer ever recorded in Europe in over 500 years of meticulous record keeping. There was never a hotter summer. And bear in mind, climatically, if you take conditions or factors like the La Nina and El Nino, last summer shouldn't have been an especially hot summer. Right. It wasn't an El Nino summer. The last time we had a really hot summer, a really hot year, like a super hot year was 2016, which is the last big El Nino year. We, we, so last year should have been a cool year, yet it was the hottest summer ever recorded in Europe. And those drought conditions, we thought the reservoirs of Europe and the rivers of Europe would be recharged over the winter. It didn't happen because we basically had winter droughts. We had months and, and, in the winter. Before you go on and say, because I know what you're going to say, John, I know exactly what you're going to say. Before, before you go on and say it, yep. the El Nino effect raises the temperature and it may stay raised for years afterwards. That's correct. Okay. Yep. This coming year, this year is an El Nino year. Correct. Yes. So how bad is this going to get? The, uh, last year, last summer, was hellish in many parts of uh, Europe. China experienced, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here, here lads, because I'm I've n- I'm not working from notes. Okay, I'm working from memory. But the description that I recall from it was: they said the most extreme temperatures ever recorded on Earth were recorded in regions of China last summer. Now, this didn't make front page headlines in Ireland because, ah, I guess you know who cares about people off over there? It's nothing to do with us. But that's that's the reality. If any of our listeners who pay attention to this stuff, who actually track uh, extreme weather on planet Earth as a as a uh, a weird hobby, let's say, uh, it is incredible. And if you think about it, let you know, let's turn extreme weather into the hundred meter dash. Okay, so when we start the hundred meter dash, it's very easy to break records, right? But eventually, it gets to a point where it gets harder and harder to break those records. So you know, nine point one seconds or eight point eight seconds or whatever it is, and because 
you've you've sort of hit you've a pitch of extreme weather and it really gets harder and harder to to top that. My point is when we've had two decades of extreme weather, we've had records broken and broken and broken and broken, but every year it's getting harder to break the records because the records are getting more extreme. And guess what? We're still breaking the records. This is the weird thing. It's like as if we're running the hundred meters in six and a half seconds. Right, the weather is on steroids. That's my 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 painful analogy. John, you've been banging your head off this this brick wall twenty years. You've been doing it publicly for fifteen years. Um, it's worse now than it was twenty years ago. There's no doubt about it. There is less willingness to do anything now than there has been at any stage. Oh, hang on. Why do you why do you think there's less willingness, or is there there there's I think there's actually more willingness, but there's also there's an idea by fools. Tom. No, but We're I think we I, I think what happens is we get that we get told we have a plan, and we're we're and unfortunately a lot of our a lot a great a great plan is where is where initiative goes to die quite often. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been really, really good at, at coming up with like, you know, we're going to have, these are the plans. And then we all announce the plans and then we walk away and, and, and we don't want any implementation. Oh, Martin. I'll, I'll give you that. But I, I, I'm going to go on a little, Sean. We see in our everyday news pan, and you've argued um, very hard that we should be covering this a lot harder in our media. And you and you think there should be dedicated it should, it should be something about the environment on every front page every day. That's the only way it's going to happen. But it's not happening, John. And we're seeing articles about, you know, be happy because these tick boxes. Oh, lovely. Be happy because of these. Oh, we're very happy people here in Ireland. We're constantly told we're happy people here in Ireland. And we're told things like the jobs for the future are this, that, and the other. But the jobs for the future, based on the reality of where we are at the present moment in time, is you should be teaching your kids how to scavenge. You should be teaching them how to grow food indoors. And um, I mean, you should be teaching them how to live in a post-apocalyptic era. That's what you should be teaching them. Probably worth defining apocalypse, Martin. And I'm going to offer a definition that I heard. And they said that collapse for people in countries like Ireland means living the way the people who grow your coffee live today. Yeah. Right. So let's agree that billions of people in the world are right now are living in, in, in situations which we would deem apocalyptic. But worse than that, in many cases, those situations are getting much, much worse. For example, so many people are primary food producers. Uh, take Latin America, Central America. And if you take the, the whole region of Central America is dramatically drying out. And that's drying out again. <laughs> no surprise, because this is a global warming effect. And they are becoming they're effectively these these the, the migrants that you're seeing pushing into the US. They're climate migrants. Yeah. They're the they're that legacy that we've already described, and this is this is really the, this is the reality that we have to contend with right now. Is that the ability to produce food is one of those things? I mean, people were producing food a long time before they were doing anything else. And we'll be producing food probably a long time after we're doing anything else too, because it is the most primary thing that any, I won't say society, any group of either humans or other animals do is either produce or basically secure food in some shape or form. 
what we can see very, very clearly is with things like the, the Green Revolution, uh, which was the appliance of technology, things like the, the uh, Bosch-Haber process in nitrogen production and so on, in the 20th century, it was reckoned before the 20th century that the, the carrying capacity of planet Earth maximum was about 2 billion people, absolute maximum. Then we got very clever and we cheated with uh, the application of artificial nitrogen and so on. And it's reckoned that the next 6,000 million people alive today are alive because of our ability, if you like, to, to trick more food out of the system. But the problem is we've created a very, very precarious system where we have industrialized food production, chemically dependent. And by the way, when we say chemical nitrogen, we're also, this is effectively a fossil fuel because it's incredibly energy intense to produce chemical nitrogen. And therefore, you can consider chemical nitrogen as yet another fossil fuel. So in a way, we're eating fossil fuels, if I can put it that way, right? And it's been pointed out that for every calorie of human food, that we get from our from our um, agriculture system, typically 10 calories of energy goes in to produce one calorie out. And that's, by the way, in efficient food systems. If you go through more inefficient systems, those ratios get a lot worse. It, it sounds, you know, John, if I, I'm sorry to cut in, but it's just, you, if we always say for every for every dollar the US gives out in in in, uh, in global aid they extract they extract 10 from from the from developing nations so 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 it has a certain symmetry to that you know yeah no absolutely and i think it's a good way of putting it tony because essentially humans have run up a massive overdraft against the world now you've probably heard this concept called the world overshoot day now this year it's going to happen i think around about july the 28th and that's the day upon which humans have, have exhausted all the available earth resources for a full year and the rest of the year basically you're spending down non-renewable resources. It's a crude calculus. However, the Ireland version of the Earth Overshoot Day occurred on the 22nd of April. So it's already behind us. So we're living uh, roughly at the rate of somewhere between two and a half and three worlds worth of resources. We're hitting, and this, we're hitting, our, we're hitting our annual target in a quarter. Yeah, so a little over a quarter. And to tell you how quickly this has changed, globally, World Overshoot Day in 1971 fell on the 25th of December, right? So basically the world was just about meeting balanced up between resource extraction and the Earth's ability to recover through regeneration and through growth. Now, so now it's gone back, as I said, to July the 28th, which means we need somewhere between one and a half and two Earths to provide our needs. But of course, we don't have them. So what we're doing instead is we're spending down on the sort of the cosmic credit card and we're handing the heavily loaded credit card to our kids and their kids and say, listen, guys, it's been a blast. Sorry, we won't be here to uh, help you with the with the bill, but we also. So, so John, uh, is that why is that why Ireland sent five people off to uh, off to the EU to say we don't we don't want uh, the European Court of uh, Human Rights to include a right to a a, a healthy uh, air and and land and all the rest of it in the future? Is that one of the reasons we did it? Uh, quite possibly, that was uh, that was the so called uh, the the Swiss grannies case. Uh, fascinating stuff, really. Yeah, but, real... but Ireland was one of only like five countries and we sent a five-person delegation to say no, no, no. Yeah, and in fact, of only two countries made oral presentations, Tony, Switzerland, the defending country, and good old Ireland, the, 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 the land of the green, right? The, 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 the origin green, the island of green. Yeah, we have, we have a bad attitude to nature on this island. We have a really bad attitude to nature. Uh, we regard nature as 
I don't know, something in the way of our, um, I, I wonder. Don't say, don't say manifest destiny because, because, <laughs> because, because they use that, they use that as the excuse to destroy the like generations of people and destruct, destroy the environment. Native Americans, for example, yes. were the yeah. victims of manifest destiny. No, absolutely not. No, it was more, I, I often wonder, and again, we, we're not going to wander into the, into the halls of sociology today, but I often wonder if it was the, the legacy of basically being, you know, tenants in our own country for so long that we that we have such a negative approach to our our natural heritage but you we're know. not alone yeah. far from it martin we're not alone in that if you look across the world and it really is i know as i said 20 years you're at this and and we've been chin wagging about this for a while and it's my reckoning until a lot of white people die in a rich country that it's not going to be real for white people in rich countries. And it's just not. I think that's fair. And and people who may have read a book called The Ministry for the Future um, will recall a very uh, unforgettable opening chapter in which a wet bulb uh, disaster occurs in uh, India, leading to tens of millions of deaths. Like a, a like a carnage on an on a this is the equivalent of a world war happening over a few days, and the the effect of it without giving away any plot spoilers the effect of it is to drastically reshape global politics in a way that anybody involved in the carbon business basically uh, is facing uh, how can I put this politely is likely to get get themselves killed. Yeah. Because people have reached the point where they realize that people involved in the carbon business, people who want to fly jets and, and do all of that stuff are going to get us all killed. And at that point, a a inflection point, if you like, was crossed where people were prepared to do anything, and I mean anything, to stop it. Now, we haven't reached that point, Martin. I mean, you're absolutely Oh, right. I don't know. Have we, John, you've described where the planet is at on borrowed time right now. Oh, yeah. And the solution at the moment, and, and it's been very disappointing over the last couple of years, we've had so many heads come together and no real plans or solutions, nothing tangible has come out that's going to solve anything. Despite all the rhetoric, there's nothing there. There's no solution on the horizon. So you've described a planet that's in deficit. So here's the bottom line. A lot of you are going to die or a lot of your children are going to die or a lot of your grandchildren are going to die. Your whole line will disappear because half the planet has to disappear so that the other half can survive on the resources that are left. And then it'll happen again and then again and then again. Yeah, that's a that's a bleak assessment, but uh, I... The carrying capacity, I use that phrase a little, I know it's a slightly agricultural phrase and a brutal and, phrase. And, and it upsets people because we get into this kind of like, we're also, we're, we're not the not the fatalistic option. It's almost like we're saying we're being anti-human. We're not. Yeah. We're doing this from a source of mm -hmm. wanting humans to survive. It's coming yeah. from that perspective, you know? I, th I think so, Tony. And I, I would even go further and say that I, I kind of, when I stumbled into this, first of all, I, I have to say I, I did so as a frightened human and as a parent, you know, I'm very worried about the future. And and I'm, I'm still all of the above. But I've also, my the sort of shape of my lens has changed a little bit as well. You know, I now have taken a wider view that it isn't enough or sufficient for humans to survive if we burn the world down. Well, first of all, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but second of all, even if it somehow could happen, it, we don't deserve to survive. 
if the price for human survival is the death of arguably the only uh, reservoir, glittering reservoir of complex life anywhere in the cosmos. If, if, if our fate is to destroy that, then you, you have to wonder really as to what the devil are we as a species? Are we yeah. simply an invasive species? I mean, well, I don't know. There's, I think there's great will within people to see change, but we lack the leadership or we lack the ability to elect leadership that will do it. And on that, Martin, anybody, and, and this came up in a radio thing I did recently where I, you know, I was listing out my, if I was the, the minister for everything, what would I do? So I listed out my <laughs> top, top things and the interviewer responded and said, John, you'll never get elected. And I said, you're absolutely right. I'm on, I may be delectable, but I'm unelectable, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's true because, you know, uh, if I go to the public or if anybody goes to the public and tells them how deep the shit that we're in, number one, they will not believe you. They're not prepared. They won't believe you. And number two, they will hate you for it. They'll absolutely hate you for it. And trust me, I <laughs> I get plenty of abuse simply for pointing out the obvious. Now, you know, they say if you tell people what they want to hear, they'll love you for it. And if you tell them the way it is, they'll hate you for it. And unfortunately, we're in that phase. And, you know, I'm not sure, by the way, Martin, about the if we had better leaders. You know, I don't believe that this is a problem that can be fixed. I think this is a predicament that has to be, I don't mitigated. know, endured. Mitigated. Yeah, mitigated, sure. But it's a predicament rather than a problem. And you know they say problems have solutions and predicaments have outcomes. I don't believe there is a solution to the climate crisis. There may be an outcome. There may be multiple outcomes. And that, by the way, is not me being fatalistic because even in a predicament, there, there are different outcomes, right? So, you know, it doesn't, predicament doesn't mean there's no hope, blah, blah, blah. It simply means the, the moment of a fix, I think fixes probably, oh, you'll hate me for saying this, but if you go back to the Club of Rome in 1972, they set it out then, right then they said, you know, we're in, we're in crisis. This planet is in crisis. And unless we take drastic mitigation action, they said sometime in the next 50 to 100 years, the conditions for life on Earth are going to grow very, very negative for humans and for other creatures, but they were mostly obviously focused on humans. Now, we're uh, 50 years into their prognos prognosticative pathway, right? And I have to tell you, we're bang on track. In fact, I reckon we're 10 or 15 years ahead. I think we're about a decade ahead of where I thought we were going to be when I started out 20 years ago. I thought the bad stuff would start in the 2030s, mid-2030s is my guess. Uh, and I, and I, even at that time, you know, when I was looking at that from 2005, 2010, that still felt comfortably distant. I will now say, number one, the bad stuff is, is here. And number two, I think, and again, you can quote me on this. <laughs> I guess this is the point of the exercise is you. I think we're going to have a terrible, terrible climate event this decade, an unimaginably terrible climate event. How we'll react to it is another matter. Whether it happens in, you know, uh, somewhere that we care about, like Europe or America, or whether it happens in somewhere that we kind of pretend to care but quickly get over it, like Asia uh, or Africa, that remains to be seen. But I think we're approaching the, the point where um, the likelihood of a confluence of meteorological, climatological, and bad luck will lead us to a, a, a disaster on the scale 
in terms of mortality of a world war. That's, yeah. you know, and maybe it's, a bad world war. Yeah. It's hard to say that we're going to, uh, and a catastrophe may happen over three or four years, John. Yeah. Right? Well, oh, yeah. It be a single event. You know but also, I mean? exactly. But like, for example, a mega drought is a slow moving disaster. disaster. Yeah. And it's almost like, a, it's like a storm is a quick, dramatic thing. But a, a, a crippling drought can be every bit as deadly as a storm, but it kills people in different ways over different time scales. I, John, thank you very much for coming on. I know it's a little bit pessimistic, but I, I don't think it's pessimistic so much as realistic as looking at the facts and saying, this is where we are. And on that, Martin, and thank you again to yourself and Tony for having me, but I think it's just super important to say that the purpose of being blunt and direct like this is we have got to stop kidding ourselves and one another that that some that people out there are on the job and are solving this problem and our politicians have got this one. They haven't, right? Yeah. They really haven't. And therefore, unless we, the citizens, are kicking them up the behind saying, guys, you really need to follow the science, you need to pay attention here. I think I think it's very foolish on the part of, of us as citizens to be passive about this. It, it It's an unbelievably dangerous moment. And it's not a moment to be tuned out and to be sitting back in your chair and to be saying, well, you know, I'm sure the, I'm sure the top people have got this one. Believe yeah. me, they haven't. Yeah. <laughs> that must be good. No, that doesn't have to be. Listen, John, thank you very much. Just if you want to be realistic about this and you want to uh, equip your kids and grandkids for the future, teach them how to light fire without matches and teach them how to divine water. And if you want a different scenario than that, well, then get active. Simple as. John, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Listen, folks, I do. I, you've mentioned India a few times. And I, I, again, I'm going to I'm gonna wreck the, the quote. But my favorite author is uh, Arundhati Roy. And she often wrote, and this is this is also quite glum in a way, but I think she, again, I'll ruin the quote, but it's something about, you know, the reason we have wars now is we hide the idea that we have these wars to obfuscate the fact that they're not actually an aberration or they're not, um, they're not uh, you know, a mistake, that they're actually systemic and logical exercises in a way of preserving a way of life for us to have pleasures and comforts uh, that can only be cho- delivered to a few, like the few, and uh, what she calls the protra- protracted war for hegemony, i.e. lifestyle wars. And that is only going to become worse as we as there's less of the extractive earth to be taken. And I mean that in, in I'm trying to be, I, I don't know, I'm trying to end on a high and I'm not ending on a high at all. But it's, it, but when I think about the lifestyle wars that, that I've that have often quoted that, Martin, you know, I've, I'm, I'm a big, big fan of Iron Diaries writings and I would recommend to everyone. It's terrifying to think that we're here now and we're at the idea whereby we are cutting ourselves if we're not looking at what this no, uh, argument, uh, argument is. We're cutting ourselves. Pessimism is optimism. In, in this, uh, I mean, if you're pessimistic, you're actually on the optimistic side of life, you and, know. And on the and on that, we are going to be back covering uh, a related topic on on the banks that base themselves in the European headquarters in Dublin that are fueling the uh, climate uh, problems in terms of fueling fossil fuels. You know who they are, but they don't have high street presences in 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 Ireland, but they have big glass boxes down oh, on massive, the docks. Massive. And we'll be talking, we'll be talking with an expert on that uh, later on in the week. So we'll be coming back to it. Thanks for listening, and and uh, listen, look after yourselves. Don't mind these two. We we will we'll get there. I promise. This <laughs> soon. Bye bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people only.
Cry hard now, on pain.